All right, we have arrived at a special place in our study of biblical theology uh, because as of late we've been talking about hermeneutics, you remember, um, and we have been talking about uh, some things that uh, hermeneutics or biblical theology is not built on, which things like allegory and spiritualizing of, of the text in that way. Um, we also talked about the importance of the grammatical, historical uh, hermeneutic. Uh, and today, I want to talk about uh, this important hermeneutical principle, which is the redemptive historical uh, approach uh, to interpretation. Uh, let me just kind of give a quick uh, definition by what we mean by redemptive historical. Uh, basically, what we mean is that um, the way that we should approach uh, the scripture and the way that we we should seek to interpret the scripture is really from a from a point of view that understands that scripture is presenting to us the story of redemption and and even more so than that um, the idea that God's salvation and His purposes and His dealings with man in terms of salvation is progressively unfolding. And so that is where the redemptive part of it comes in, that we are looking at the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes. And then historical uh, refers to the idea that uh, this progressively unfolding salvation, redemption, is happening throughout the progressive history of the Bible. And uh, what is the history of the Bible but what theologians have called the history of special revelation. And uh, this is very important because if you remember last week we talked about, uh, we talked a little bit about the grammatical historical method and the idea that in the grammatical historical method, what, what people are trying to do in order to interpret the Bible is they're saying, well, we have to analyze the grammar of the, of the Bible, the, old, the Hebrew and the Greek. We have to analyze the actual grammar of Scripture. Okay, fair enough, right? But then when they say grammatical historical, when they say historical, what they're talking about is what's essentially known as background information, where we're trying to understand the historical situation of um, the author the audience, also the argument of a particular book or letter or epistle or gospel or what have you. But they do not necessarily um, take into account the, the, the fact that biblical history is a history of special revelation, that the historical account of Scripture is itself special revelation, which means it is divine revelation, that the history of the Bible is divine in nature. Uh, that's important. Remember, God in the Bible is working through redemptive words, the words that he has revealed, and he is working through redemptive acts or redemptive deeds. And so the same God that speaks in a revelatory way to Moses through the burning bush and speaks to him the word of Yahweh, right, speaks directly the words that he has to reveal to Moses, is the same God that acts in history through the Exodus. Okay, so God is revealing himself in that way. So, how do we make this a little bit easier to understand? Because I'm seeing a lot of confused faces. Um, I, simply put, 
The redemptive historical approach is what we could call a gospel-centered approach to interpretation. A gospel-centered approach to interpretation. And and, and so what, um, what license do we have to interpret all of Scripture in a gospel-centered way? Quick question for... Yes, sir? Luke 24. Luke 24, which... which so just Luke 24? Or just no, all of Luke 24? Now when Jesus is uh, speaking to the people saying that, uh, that, that all of the Scripture is about him and, okay. he's, and he's exegeting uh, himself out of all the... Prophets of old and all the, the okay. testaments of old. Yeah, excellent. So just based on what Robert is saying there, um, and I guess I'll just kind of be throwing up some scriptures, but yeah, Luke 24 is uh, an important one, especially uh, when you're talking about basically like verses 26 through 28, also 44 through 46 of Luke 24. Those uh, passages are extremely central to this hermeneutic of having a gospel-centered interpretation of all of Scripture. Now, what I want you to do now is, is, is kind of take you to a passage of Scripture. Okay, so we're going to spend our whole time looking at one text. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Because what we find out about the theology of not only Paul, but of the New Testament, is that, in fact, what we're being given in the Bible is what we could call a trans-testamental gospel. Anybody know what I mean by trans-testamental? It spans both the Old and the New Testament. Absolutely correct. That's right. It is a gospel that doesn't begin at the life of Jesus, right? But it is a gospel that actually begins at the very beginning of the, of the word of God. From testament to testament, we have a trans-testamental gospel. And uh, I think this passage is going to be um, very, very important for us to see that a trans-testamental gospel means, it means this, and I really want you to understand this, Okay really want you to understand that what a gospel-centered, trans-testamental, maybe I should write this up here, right? Trans-testamental gospel, right? That this gospel is basically saying two things. That Christ is the center, right? Let's put that. Christ is the center, and also Christ, watch this now, is the goal. On the one hand, Christ is centric. So we have here what is known as a Christocentric interpretation of the Bible, which means that basically Jesus is at the heart of it all, right? However, a, the Christ goal is what's called a Christotelic gospel, which means that Christ is the goal of it all. In other words, as the history of special revelation, let's put that down so 
that we don't forget what we're talking about. That as the history of special revelation unfolds, what we're looking at is both a... Let's write these big intimidating words down, okay? We're, we're seeing both a Christocentric uh, and a Christotelic. I started writing Greek, I'm sorry. A Christotelic hermeneutic. So, Christ as center and Christ as goal. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 1 to try to substantiate some of this, okay? Notice how the Apostle Paul speaks about the gospel. When we think, when I tell you, when I tell you in your mind, what is the gospel? You know, if you go through membership in our church and you become a member, one of the things we ask you to do is to have a biblical definition of the gospel. You must be able to articulate a proper gospel, right? And so immediately, um, when we think of the gospel, probably the first thing we think about is, well, how people get saved and how Christ died on the cross and rose again. You have to repent, you have to believe, right? And you start thinking about these kinds of characteristics of the gospel, which are all true. However, observe the way that Paul talks about the gospel. He says this, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, see that there, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord question for you where are you in this gospel presentation Where is the sinner in the gospel presentation up to this point? Anyone? Anyone? Are you shaking your head, K-Dub? Nowhere? That's the correct answer. Come on up and get your prize. (laughs) You are nowhere to be found. Isn't that striking? The gospel of God is first and foremost, notice the language of verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel is about Jesus Christ before it is about any of us. You see? Now, of course, this is not ever to say that when you preach the gospel, right, that you say, well, let me tell you about the Son of God, and then you give them some Christology, but then you leave it at that. (laughs) Right? So the gospel proclamation or the gospel that's being proclaimed is a gospel not only about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and and his cross work, but also then a proper, what the Bible would call a a calling, right? A general, uh, um, uh, you know, a proper gospel call, which is a summons to repent and believe. Uh, that's all absolutely important as well. Um, this, uh, this text is going to give us four things, okay? It's going to give us the source of the gospel. It's going to give us the promise of the gospel. It's going to give us the Old Testament of the gospel. And it's going to give us the Christocentric Old Testament gospel. Um, are we going to finish all of that? I don't know. We'll see. You know, last time I checked, we're not under the gun here. We're not under any agenda. What's that? Can you repeat that list? Sure, sure, sure. So, and I'll write it down. So we're looking at here the source of the gospel. 
Um, what else did I say? Yes. The promise of the gospel. The Old Testament, I guess we could put gospel, right? And then the Christ-centered... Uh, uh, I knew I'd garble that up. The Christ-centered Old Testament gospel. Okay? That's the way this text is going to develop. And it is, it is it's really marvelous. Now, first, let's consider the source of the gospel. Where does the gospel come from? Here it comes from um, the phrase where the Apostle Paul says he was set apart, watch this now, for the gospel of God. Now there is a grammatical issue that has to be resolved. When it says of God, what does it mean? God's gospel, his possession, okay? That is what's known as a, um, a subjective genitive. Any other way to interpret that, Pastor Chris? Objective genitive. <laughs> okay. What is that? So, oops. <laughs> Where am I at? Right? Yeah, an objective genitive, which is both... Uh, which both, by the way, are absolutely possible in the text, an objective genitive. So a subjective genitive, Landon already used the crucial word, which means possession, which means that this is a gospel that God possesses. And the best way to think of an, uh, a, a subjective genitive is that this is the gospel that flows from God, right? So just like you have in 1 John, the love of God, is that referring to our love for him or his love for us? The difference is very simple. The difference is either a subjective or objective genitive. And this is what grammarians spend time fighting about in books. You know? And uh, so, yes, yeah, so here I, I do believe that we're looking at a subjective gospel. Objective means that it is about God. It is about God. You see what I'm saying? And you say, well, the gospel is about God. But, but the problem is, is that what's going on in this context, it's definitely a, a subjective genitive because this is the gospel that flows from God unto us, that he reveals. And so uh, that is the way that most commentators would absolutely take it. Set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel is God's idea. It is not our idea. That's the, I, that's the thing to remember, that this gospel originates in the eternal recesses of God. Isn't that remarkable? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 very quickly, uh, just to see some of this, right? Spoken maybe in a little bit of a different way, but just the idea of the decrees of God coming into play here, right? That this Christocentric gospel is the gospel that God has had in his eternal mind and his eternal decrees. Um, we've looked at this many times, but chapter 3, beginning of verse 8, says to me, the very least of all the, all the saints, was, this grace was given, watch this now, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That is another way of talking about the gospel, the unfathomable riches of 
of Christ in the gospel, right? And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which, and this is also very, very close parallel to what we're looking at here, the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God. What a remarkable statement. Hidden in God, meaning hidden in his mind, hidden in his purposes. It says, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That is talking about the angelic and demonic hosts. They, they will see the redemptive work of God unfold before their very eyes. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. You see, the eternal purpose is referring to God's eternal decrees. What God has foreordained, what God has always had planned out for his marvelous glory through Jesus Christ. Uh, in other words, it's the gospel that he's had uh, as his central redemptive historical purpose from all eternity. <laughs> and what Paul is saying is this, the evangelist, right, and in his case, the apostle, his, the blessing and the privilege of, of that is that we get to take the mystery of that, which has now been revealed, and we get to declare it to the world, right? That what was hidden in God for ages past has now been revealed. And so, and remember, I think I mentioned this last week, but in Ephesians, the mystery cults were very much about a sort of a hidden uh, hidden knowledge, kind of like a Gnostic kind of cult, right? It was all about hidden and secret cryptic knowledge, whereas Paul is correcting that and saying, no, 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 no. The truest, deepest context of the mystery is actually a hidden thing revealed. It's not something hidden that God is continuing to hide from us and that you have to, through some esoteric right, ecstatic sort of experience as you launch out into the ethereal world in your soul, you, you, you somehow try to mystically tap into that mystery that nobody else knows about. No, 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 no. This is to be proclaimed on the rooftops. God's mystery has been revealed. And, um, and, and so therefore, uh, this is why God is the source. God is the source of the gospel. It comes from him. I wrote down, God is the source of the gospel because God is the ultimate source of all revelation. And as a matter of fact, we are commended for receiving the word of God as such. Somebody want to read for us very quickly of 1 Thessalonians. um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 13. Somebody... So we want, uh, Chris, you want to get that? First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, just to see that we are to receive the word of God or, the, you know, um, as such, right? First Thessalonians 2, 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. That's right. You receive the word of God for what it is. 
You received it as the word of God, not as the word. Look at the priority in Paul's mind. Even before, and the word of God is flowing through him in his epistles. And he's saying, even beyond you receiving this as a word from us, right? It is not originating from us. The true source of revelation is God himself. He is the divine author that stands behind the human author. Now, any questions, comments, or statements? Yes, sir. When you look in first, where he says, it turned to God from idols. And that's a huge point because it's God the one who is turning them from idols, not, oh, let me see if I can find another idol here, and I'm then turning it. No, no, no. Idols have no power, they're dead. That's right. God turned them from idols. He turned to himself from idols. That's right. I think it's a good example of Yeah, idols don't have any revelatory power, you know? Only God does. So let's move on to the second one. So we looked at the source, which is God, and, you know, um, we can go on and on there. But now let's talk about the promise. Go back to Romans 1, right? And, and look at the way that Paul speaks about this trans... Remember, for those of you that walked in a little bit late, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a redemptive historical hermeneutic that is gospel-centered at the very core. And what that results in is a trans-testamental gospel, a gospel that transcends the testaments, that spans God's revelatory activity from, from one end of the book to the other, basically. Right? The gospel is the bookends of the Bible, basically. Right? It's from beginning to end. And what is contained in this trans-testamental gospel? Two things. A Christocentric and a Christotelic reading of Scripture. In other words, the Bible is Christ-centered, and the Bible is, also has Christ as the goal. Right? So as redemptive history progresses, everything within it um, is... Is, is, is not only Christocentric, but also Christ, uh, Christotelic. I like that, right? So telos is the Greek word that means goal, right, or purpose, right? Like last night, um, I was, I was, um, was re- I've been trying to do devotions right before bed. I go to bed, and I've been just saturating my mind in protology, because guess what? The Emmaus Conference is coming, and we're going to be teaching on protology. And I thought, okay, I want to teach protology of the days of creation, who does that? Nobody. Let me tell you something. Nobody does that. <laughs> How do I know? Because I looked all over Amazon. Nobody does this. Okay? Nobody takes the days of creation and, and does a redemptive, historical, Christ-centered exposition of the days of creation. You know what they do? The Bible doesn't teach evolution. <laughs> that, that's what everybody's doing with the days of creation. There's no such thing as a million years in, the, in, in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, fair enough. But is Moses really trying to refute Darwinian evolution? I don't think so, folks. I think that um, I think Moses has a much deeper uh, intention and focus in the creation narrative. And what I... I'm coming to the conclusion, now reading more and more and more about this, I'm telling you day two, day three, day four, day five, I've been saturating my mind in these days, and guess what I'm finding? I'm finding allusions of those days all over the prophetic literature, all over the wisdom literature, and guess what those prophetic references are grounded in? in a Christocentric, Christotelic interpretation. (laughs) I tell you what, all of that is going to ultimately lead us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's that? (laughs) This is all a sermon, and this is why, you know... um, 
We're trying to substantiate now the promise of the gospel. Notice the way he talks about it. He says, he set apart for the gospel of God that flows from God, that originates with God. Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures. So this is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel. So the gospel has a promissory character to it. It is a beforehand promised gospel. And where is it promised? Well, it's right here. Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is remarkable because what you're saying is that the prophets and in the Holy Scriptures, I think this is just a reference to all all of the Bible in the Old Testament. Right? It's just a they, the authors of the New Testament often speak of the entire Old Testament by referring to the prophets that wrote it. But when you and I think prophets, who do we think about? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? We, we think about major and minor prophets mainly. How many times do you stop to think prophets? Oh, David. No, you usually think David was a king, right? He's the king. Well, uh, in fact, we'll go on to see that David is more than just a king. But notice that this is a promissory gospel. And so in that sense, again, we are, we're grounding ourselves back into a trans-testamental gospel because it was promised beforehand uh, in his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Now, mark that. How do we develop the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament? Do we develop it by saying, well, we're in the New Testament. We can look back at the Old Testament and we can see how some things can fit. Or we can now interpret the Old Testament in a new and living way, (laughs) to borrow the language of Hebrews. Right? So in other words, as the, the, the liberals uh, basically concluded back in the 1800s uh, following the deism of the Enlightenment period, what the, 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 the liberals of historical higher criticism said, which they basically rejected the divine nature of Scripture, what they basically said was this, that the New Testament authors, based on their knowledge of Christ and the gospel, what they did is they looked back to the Old Testament And they interpreted their Old Testament not intrinsically, meaning based on its own quality, but they interpreted the Old Testament based on their imagination after the fact. You see what I'm saying? And so they began to see ways to fit the Christ in there based on their newfound theology. But is that what this is saying? No. Because this is just said, it was promised beforehand through his prophets, watch this, in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this is taking the transtestamental gospel into a, and, and what it is, it's presenting it to us on a textual level. What that means is that the text of the Old Testament itself is presenting to us the gospel. It is intrinsic to the Old Testament's original writing that the gospel is there. 
Everybody get that point? Any questions? Christ John 5.39 wasn't it? Search the scriptures and they all speak of me. That's right. They search the scriptures, but they all speak of me. That's right. That's right. That you may have life, but these refer to these speak of me, right? That's right. Yes, yes, ma'am. Absolutely, well, absolutely. So I guess my question is this, though. Like, we were talking about this at the ladies' study last week. Because you know how it talks about hidden, right? The mystery, hidden. Yes. Right, you know, but, but, it, but it wasn't fully hidden. Because it was like they were waiting for the Messiah. Mm. There were... Wow. So it was hidden, but not true, not completely, right? That's actually... Trish is actually touching on something uh, that is uh, really, really important. Uh, let me just write this up here. Now, intrusion is a principle that was developed by a theologian by the name of Meredith Klein. And what Meredith Klein argued from Westminster, what he argued was this, is that what we're looking at at in the Old Testament is both a veiling and revealing of the gospel. Both a veiling and revealing of Christ. And in that way, God is intruding into the Old Testament period of time based on a future time. And that future age, namely the New Covenant, New Testament age, intruded upon the Old Testament through both veiling the New Testament realities and revealing them. Isn't that remarkable? How does he veil them? How does he veil them? I would say he veils them through prom in a promise promise form, right? Mm-hmm. How does he veil them? So how does those promises come? Anyone? Anyone? Through a prophecy. Yeah, essentially waiting on people to fulfill some of it in parts or so, progressively. Okay, so you're talking about prophecy, prophecy fulfillment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in uh, okay. Okay. His hand that he pierced. Okay. Not necessarily in its context, but in its fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment would be Christ. That's right. That's right. Uh, What now? Dual meanings. Um, Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Some people are afraid of that language, but I know what you mean by that because from a redemptive historical approach, remember, we've done this before. I can't erase anything. I can't lose anything. This is too much, (laughs) right? But we've done this before, but when you take the initial... Let's say a promise, a prophecy, a type, a shadow, something. Then along history, you have a redemptive historical progression that has multiple fulfillments until you reach the apex in Christ. Like Abraham, like Noah. Like Abraham's promise. Then it's prop, you know. Then it's it's propagated to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel to the, the eschatology of the prophets, and then finally fulfilled in Christ. And you can do that with all sorts of types and shadows until they, they go through the same process, uh, the idea of sonship. The idea of sonship. Adam is a son of God. Israel is a son of God. Right? And then finally, Jesus is a son of God. You see, you see, you see what I'm saying? So, yes, question? You answered it. Oh, I did. The types thing. 
Okay, yeah. So it's veiled, we're talking about intrusion here, right? It's veiled by the... Um, it's veiled by the symbolic sacrifices. It's veiled by the types, the shadows, the promises. In that way, uh, it, is, it is veiled, but it is also revealed, right? There's, a, there's, there's, there's the, the, the unveiling of it as well, that as the people of God saw the sacrifices, let's just take the sacrifices, for example, because what, what we're going to find as we develop this, this is just one scripture. We're going to hit many, many scriptures. But what we're going to find is that Jesus Christ is not just awaited in the Old Testament, but Jesus Christ is actually sacramentally present in the Old Testament. He is present to bless his people. He is present to save his people. And so what the sacrifices did is that they presented people with a with a prefigure, you know this, of its fulfillment. But as the people looked upon the type of that sacrifice and faith in the in the significance of that sacrifice, they were putting their faith in the Christ of Scripture. In other words, um, this is important because we have to understand that the Bible is not presenting to us two tracks of salvation. One for the Old Testament saints and one for the New Testament saints. The Old Testament saints, they get saved by works. New Testament saints, they get saved by grace. No, absolutely not. After all, who is the model of New Testament salvation? Abraham, right? It is the justifying grace of God in, the, in Abraham by faith, that becomes the model for the New Testament. <laughs> so how could there be two ways of salvation? They just can't. It's just, it, you can't do it, right? So then we have to say Jesus was sacramentally present in the sacrifices, types, and shadows of the Old Covenant. Right? Isn't that what Hebrews is teaching us right now about the tabernacle? The whole tabernacle cultus, which, which speaks of the religious um, ritual life of Israel, the whole cultus was about Christ, <laughs> the whole thing. We're going to read a scripture today. Oh, actually, next week, but we're going to touch on it today. That says that the veil that hung in the tabernacle was actually the flesh of Jesus. <laughs> You're telling me Jesus was not sacramentally present in the Old Testament? Of course he was, right? Uh, anyway, I'm just getting ahead of myself now. But So this leads us to the Old Testament gospel, right? Because that's what he's saying. Now, let's look at the nature of the Old Testament gospel. Look at what it says here. Now he says that it was concerning his son, right? So the Old Testament gospel is a Christocentric gospel. It is a Christotelic gospel. He is the center. He is the goal of it all. Right? And you can just use example after example after example to show this very thing. Uh, narrative after narrative, account after account, historical event after historical event where the authors of the New Testament under the inspiration of the, the Spirit uh, show us that in fact the Old Testament was written in such a way that all of those events, all of those things that transpired were actually Christ-centered in nature. Everything. The whole Exodus event, folks, 
this cataclysmic movement of God coming down and terrible wrath and plagues and signs and wonders and all of this. What was it all, all about? It was all about Christ. And it was a future for signifying of the redemption that Christ would bring to his people. Jude, what's that verse, Lynn? You better know. <laughs> That's not fair. Right? <laughs> Jude, verse 5, says, Christ led a people in the Exodus. And I think that textual variant is correct, by the way. Even if you don't have the word Jesus in there, the kurios there certainly refers to Jesus. But uh, anyway, the, the word Lord. Uh, but anyway, so we see the gospel in the Old Testament. And let's get a little bit more explicit. And that's why I added the Christ-centered gospel of the Old Testament, the Christ-centered Old Testament gospel. Now, what is the, what is the nature of the Old Testament gospel about? What is it presenting to us? Now we have to erase because we, we have to write some more. So um, let, me, let me get rid of this. Okay. Let me get rid of this. And I'll get, I'll get rid of this too. You guys saw those points, right? So what Paul is giving us here is that in the Old Testament, something, watch this, concerning his son was being presented. Now you tell me, based on the text, what was it about the son? What was it about the son that was being presented to us? Anyone? It's as easy as reading verse 4 or verse 3 and 4. Really? Go ahead, say it, say it, say it. I guess so many people that tell me, man, I wanted to speak up in Sunday school. I just can't. You know how many of you, basically all of you have told me that by now. So, so come on, let's just let the cat out the bag. Go ahead and ask the question. Yes, sir. That he descended from David and he did so in his line. Mm-hmm. In his family line. Certainly there. Anyone else? kingship because obviously his connection to David right so what I'm going to say is this is that what is being presented to us in Romans is not I believe it is but it is not it is not hypostatic language what is hypostatic fully God fully man the hypostatic union right um, hypostasis is the Greek word that means nature Right? And hupo, right, is where the word two comes from, or dual, right? It has a dual nature, right? But what I'm arguing is not so much for a hypostatic, not, watch this, you guys, it's not so much a dual nature that is being presented for us, but watch this. What's being presented for us is this. A dual estate. A dual estate, number one, one that is according to what? To the flesh. Number two, one that is according to what? Spirit. Look at the text with me again. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David. Watch this now. According to the flesh, who was declared 
the Son of God with power, or literally, in duname, in power, right? Watch this now. By the resurrection from the dead, another operative um, prepositional phrase right here. According to the Spirit, which is a spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's really important is the phrase, in power. Why is that so critical? Because it does not mean he was powerfully declared. Y'all get that? It does not mean he was powerfully declared. He is the Son of God. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not a, um, it's not a description on the nature of the proclamation. It is actually descriptive of the sphere of his resurrection. It was that he was declared to be the Son of God, and watch this now, as he goes from flesh to spirit, then he gets to the position of power. Now, very careful here, right? Just as spirit does not mean that Jesus became deity, right? Neither does the flesh primarily refer to the fact that he became humanity. What's going on here is two estates, dual estates. One representing weakness. How do you know? Because the antithetical parallel is to power. Antithetical means these are in antithesis to one another. They are opposites. Jesus coming in the flesh as the son of David is Jesus assuming weakness. It is his state of humility. Jesus assuming a resurrection by the spirit of holiness is power, which means he is, he, he, his newest state is what? Exaltation. What is Paul saying the Old Testament is promising us here? That the Son of God is going from a place of weakness and humility to a place of power and exaltation. And that is absolutely crucial for the development of God's redemptive historical themes in Christ. It is God, uh, a redemptive historical development in Christ that has what? Not only Christ as the center, but watch this, Christ as the goal. And so his life, Jesus' life, was eschatological. He moves out of the realm of weakness and frailty. He moves out of the realm of death. He goes beyond the cords and the clutches of death. And through resurrection, he ascends to a place of power and exaltation, declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness. Incredible. In other words, what it's saying is this, that Jesus has entered into a new order of life. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just to show you uh, Paul's own... Uh, commentary. Okay? 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe, presents for us the same parallel. Okay? Same kind of parallel dynamic going on here. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. Verse 42. This is tremendous. By the way, you guys, this theology that we're learning here, I mean, this is 16 ounces to the pound kind of theology. You know what I mean? This is, you know, I commend you just for even being able to sit in this and, you know. But learn it. Listen to it again. Read it over and over again. Read a good commentary on it. But here we go. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Just keep your mind on the two estates here. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in dunamis, right? In power, right? It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It is a natural... If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Incredible. So also it is written... Wow, this is remarkable because this gospel reality of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul once again grounding it in the Old Testament revelation. This is incredible, right? What he's saying is that Adam is not... You know, we say Adam is a type of Christ, Okay, we know that already, right? But what else is Adam? Adam is not just a type of Christ, but Adam is representing the dual estates of Christ. The fact that in coming as a man, Jesus would go from a place of weakness to a place of spirit fullness in power. It's just remarkable. It says the first man, Adam, became a life, uh, excuse me, a living soul. That's remarkable, right? Verse, uh, and then it says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's remarkable. So is this saying that Jesus, after his resurrection, was he like floating around like a phantasm? Of course not. We know that from the Gospels. He said, touch me, feel me, know that I have flesh and bones, right? A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have, right? So what is it saying? So what it's saying is that in or through resurrection, Jesus becomes a, he, he becomes sacerdotal. His very life imparts life to others. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He entered into a state of exaltation and he becomes a life-giving spirit. We could say he became a redemptive spirit, not because he's necessary, necessarily a disembodied spirit floating around, but because he's reached a, a state of spiritual uh, uh, existence, uh, what some call Jesus' spiritual mode of existence. That's what it's referring to. He's reached a new mode of existence. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Now what that's saying is that we are being brought into the same exact process of Jesus. So let's end on this point. Just as Jesus went from a state that was katasarka, according to the flesh, so too we will, and then he moves from this to according to the spirit, katanuma. So we go in the same way that Jesus went 
from a state of weakness, a state of humility, and we will, because we follow the same pattern that Jesus followed, we will go from a state of weakness to a state of power and a state of exaltation. Amen. Like him, like him we rise. Amen. When we see him, we will be as he is. He's the first. Right? And what's remarkable for our study of biblical theology and a redemptive historical hermeneutic is that what the Apostle Paul is saying is that the dual estates of Christ going from weakness to power is something that was promised beforehand in the Old Testament. Isn't that remarkable? Right? Any last questions because we're well, coming to a close. Yes, ma'am. Romans 8, you know how it says, um, even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting, mm-hmm. waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of mm-hmm. our body. That's right. And when the Old Testament promised these things, when the Old Testament spoke of these things, he spoke, like, like he says, in his prophets, by through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Now, remember I told you about David. When you think about David, you typically don't think prophet. But Acts, Acts chapter 2, Stephen's sermon, when Stephen focused on the resurrection of Jesus, notice what he says. He says, he says, and so... This is uh, Acts 2.30. And so because David was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him, wow, with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Watch this now. Remember we talked about intrinsic to the Old Testament? Is that something that the wild imagination of the apostles are now rereading the Old Testament in a different way? No, no, no. Actually inherent and intrinsic to the Old Testament David says, or Peter says of David, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So Peter is saying exactly what Paul is saying, that in the Old Testament scriptures is contained prophecies of the dual estates of Christ as he moves out of the realm of weakness into the realm of of power through the resurrection. Let's go to, let's go to worship. Amen.